listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Dyker. Thanks for joining me for episode 57, Complexities of Agreed Extensions. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. In this episode, I'm joined by appellate specialist Jared Krukar, and we're going to discuss the intricacies and inconsistencies of obtaining and noticing agreed extensions of time in Florida's District Courts of Appeal. Jared Krukar, welcome back to the podcast. Always happy to be here, Dwayne. So Jared is joining me again this week. Jared is a board-certified uh, appellate specialist, and while he is uh, currently working at the Second District Court of Appeal, Jared's been a private practice lawyer for uh, quite a few years. You know, Jared, you don't have to deal with extensions of time too much uh, now, but but you used to in your prior life. <laughs> yes, definitely. I, in all the DCAs, and they all have their own little quirks too. They do, and that's why I thought we would spend a little bit of time looking at agreed extensions of time and you know, just, just extensions of time in general could be a huge topic. So for now, we're gonna we're gonna carve out and look at this one at this one procedure. And the reason it's kind of on the top of my mind is two things. One is it still surprises me how many people don't know that this procedure exists. You know, it's been around for so long. And the thing is, I know that nobody that's listening to this podcast. <laughs> is confused by this. <laughs> We're preaching to the choir. Uh, I get that. So that that's that's only a small reason why I wanted to talk about it. The bigger reason I wanted to talk about it is I recently got caught in a little, you know, uh, glitch uh, in a DCA that I don't operate in a lot. And it wasn't a big deal. It was no problem. I got just the sort of the mildest side eye from the court <laughs> in an order that I got back. But it reminded me that it's such a... Uh, different procedure. There's all these little nuances and all the different DCAs. It's not standardized at all, which, you know, they made no attempt to, to standardize, which is why. And so it's really important to look at these orders and, and be sure where you are and what you're doing each time. Absolutely. And you know, one thing, Dwayne, is although many of the people who listen to your podcast may not, uh, are, are completely familiar with these procedures and know that they need to check to make sure that if they're updated, they keep up with the new procedures. But a lot of the people they're litigating against don't. So we get lots of extensions at the second, and I'm sure every court's the same, that the procedures aren't followed properly. Or uh, I recall in practice, you, you call up somebody else and seeking an agreed extension, and they don't want to give it to you or are confused by it and, and don't understand the procedure. So it's a good thing to talk about. I'm glad you brought up the topic. Yeah, and I will definitely, if somebody on the other side of a case, you know, if, if someone else is, is the appellant and they call me and say, hey, I'm going to file a motion for extension of time, do you object? I always try to to sort of, without without making it seem like they don't know what they're talking about, I always like to kind of slide a little in there. Oh, so you're going to do a notice of agreed extension of time, you know, just to kind of right. prod them to do the right thing. I always did the same thing. In every email, I made sure I, I was using the the exact direct wording, you know, I'm going to file the, the stipulated extension under that procedure that the court has, you know, if that's, if that's okay with you. And that's how I would ask for it. So same kind of thing. Now, when I first started doing this, there was there were no procedures for this. You, if you needed an extension of time, you always had to file a motion. 
you always had to indicate whether it was opposed or not, and you always had to wait for an order. But I think, Jared, was it the first DCA that started this this trend of having an administrative order dealing with agreed extensions? That's my recollection. I'm not 100% positive, but I think it was the first that came out with it. And then I think the rest of the DCAs just followed suit one by one. And what was that, like 2013-ish? Early 2000-something. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. And so now, though, every DCA has their own administrative order, and you can go to their website and look it up under some one of the one of the tabs. All the websites are a little bit different as to where they locate these things, but each DCA has a very specific order that sets forth their procedures. And so, I thought we'd start just by taking a quick look at each DCA and sort of the the details of their order. And then uh, we'll wrap up by talking about what things are consistent across the courts and what aren't to kind of give everybody a a feel for it. Sounds like a plan. So I guess let's start with the first DCA because they are first. Uh, Their administrative order, it's uh, the current version. It looks like it's 19-2. But I will tell you again, I I always go to the court website and look just to make sure that I've got – we're in a time of change in the courts right now for sure. So always good to make sure you have the most recent order. But uh, currently the order, it's got one of the more generous allotments of time. You can take up to uh, 90 days for an initial brief, 90 days for an answer brief, and 15 days for a reply brief by notice of agreed extension. And that's for civil appeals because they're a little more limited in criminal appeals. And in criminal appeals, it's 60 days for an initial or answer brief um, and, of course, this doesn't apply to certain other types of appeals. And I don't think they offer uh, an agreed extension for a reply brief in a criminal appeal. Yeah, I did note that the criminal was different. I'm, you know, I tend to not pay a lot of attention to that because I don't do very much criminal work. But, yeah, there's definitely an asterisk <laughs> there for criminal work. But one of the things I've noticed is that you have to pay a lot of attention to is the different administrative orders are different in what types of proceedings they apply to. And even in the way the orders are laid out, uh, most of the orders have sort of a this is what it includes and this is what it excludes, but some of them are are laid out a little bit differently, so you kind of have to use your lawyer skills <laughs> to interpret the <laughs> orders to figure out what they're saying. But the first DCA uh, order specifically includes final and non-final orders in civil appeals and also in administrative proceedings, so uh, that's good. And it excludes uh, the things that essentially all these orders exclude. Certainly adoptions, dependency, uh, termination of parental rights, delinquency, emergencies or expedited appeals. Those are going to be uh, exempted and I think, all the administrative orders. So that's, that's pretty common. Right. Most of the things involving it, anything involving children is mandated to be expedited by statute and rule. So there won't be any um, any court order that's going to be able to shorten that time, or I'm sorry, that's going to increase that time just by stipulation. The court's going to want to take a look at it. So that doesn't surprise me. And in the first, uh, they don't issue an order. Uh, your your notice is sort of self-executing, so you don't have to worry about receiving an order. Most of the DCAs are like that. Mm-hmm. There is one additional caveat in the first. Uh, they say that if you need further extensions – beyond that 90, 90, 15 uh, in a civil matter, uh, you can ask for it by motion. uh, But even if it's an agreed motion, it requires a bona fide emergency, 
which I'm not sure, Jared, exactly what that means, but it sounds yeah, it sounds pretty serious. <laughs> I think it means that if there's any ability to not put yourself in that situation, you don't want to be there. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the gist, right, is, is plan, <laughs> plan to not ask for one because uh, I'm not sure exactly what that means and I don't want to find out. Exactly. Oh, and just to clarify in case I misspoke before, According to the rule, the procedure does apply to final and non-final criminal appeals, but not anything under 9.141B2, emergency appeals, just like the, the civil orders we talked about a second ago. All right, so moving on to the second DCA, my court, uh, we have an order that hasn't looked any different since apparently June 3rd, 2013. So <laughs> this is one of the few courts that hasn't amended anything. That's only a um, decade. I mean, that's not bad. <laughs> Oh, I can't believe it's been almost a decade since 2013. Anyways, uh, the second DCA has the kind of standard language that we saw back, kind of similar to the first DCA, where it lists what it applies to and what it does not apply to. So here it says procedure shall apply to final criminal and civil appeals, including administrative appeals, but then, it's, then it excludes everything. Shall not apply to... Adoptions, dependency, termination of parental rights, or any expedited or emergency appeal, including domestic relations with a custody or visitation matter at issue. Also, and this is the one that probably most of the listeners will be will care about, it does not apply to non-final appeals or original proceedings governed by Rule 9.100. So clearly not certs at the second DCA. It is one of the more narrow orders in that respect is that it's really just applying to to final order appeals, but, you know, I understand that. That makes sense. It's also one of the more generous uh, timeframes because it allows uh, 90 days on an initial, 90 days on an answer, and 60 days on a reply brief. So all that seems seems very, very generous. And the second DCA does not issue an order. They just accept the agreed notice, and they do mm-hmm. permit further extensions by motion. So... All in all, the second DCA order, uh, <laughs> it's my court, so it's the one I deal with uh, the most, uh, <laughs> but I like it. Yeah, one thing to note is that this order does not have anything in it like the first DCA's warning about further motions must be based on a bona fide emergency. But I, I do want to say it goes without saying for any of the courts here that a lot of courts and judges, in my experience, both outside the court and inside the court, you almost look at the stipulation time as, okay, that's a reasonable amount of time. Once you're getting beyond that total amount of time, you, you, you want to have a good and clear stated reason for your additional extension. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. It's not – these extensions are not just freebies <laughs> and then you start asking for more on top of that uh, – that's a good way of putting it, exactly. Yeah, the numbers are set because that's believed to be a, a reasonable period of time that will accommodate most situations. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. One thing we should note in this order, in most of the administrative orders, there is some specific language. The language says a notice shall be substantially the form prescribed below, and they give you the actual words to use. I, I use those words pretty much verbatim. Uh, they've invited me to use them, so I use them. I, I don't imagine the court would not accept it <laughs> if you deviated <laughs> a little bit, but but why why take the chance? <laughs> right, I, I always just follow the form. There's there's I never had a reason to deviate, and the clerk who is likely looking at this and just docketing it and then changing a number inside of a court management system, 
is probably happiest just seeing the standard agreed language and, and knows exactly what to do. Don't. There's no reason to raise a question about it, I guess, was always my feeling. Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. Chances are you don't deal with appellate bonds on a daily basis, but when you do, it's important and it's urgent. CSBA has an extensive collection of educational and reference materials on their website, including articles like, How Much Does an Appeal Bond Cost?, or Using Real Estate to Secure Appeal Bonds, and even has a state-by-state guide to appeal bond requirements. But if you still have questions or just want to talk to a knowledgeable appellate bond specialist, call CSBA at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes, but I suggest you take an opportunity right now to add their contact information to your own contact list so you're ready the next time your client needs a court bond. CSBA is a national agency that assists with court bonds all over the United States, but has extensive experience in Florida. In addition to being a longtime sponsor of this podcast, CSBA is a premier sponsor of the Florida Bar's Appellate Practice Section. The next time your client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, giving you one less thing to worry about. All right, so let's shift to the third DCA. Um, the third DCA has a couple things that are a little bit different. The order here also applies to civil and criminal final order appeals. They actually say including dissolution of marriage, which I thought was an odd include. I'm not sure why why that wouldn't be included. Is it? you have any thoughts on that? I bet it's because they want to say including dissolution of marriage, but by not mentioning it, accepting dissolution of marriage with children involved. That would be my guess. Yeah, because then they have the normal, you know, especially child-related exceptions, adoptions, dependency, termination of parental rights, and then the standard expedited or emergency appeals, and they do specifically exclude any original proceedings. So that, that does make sense. Yeah, I don't think they want anybody to misinterpret that and unintentionally think that standard dissolution of marriages without children involved get included in that group of exclusions. But again, who who knows? And one of the things that's different about the third is they're, they allow 120 days for both an initial brief and an answer brief, which seems, you know, exceptionally generous. 120 days is a lot. Interestingly, there is no provision for an agreed extension for any reply brief. Uh, any extension of time on a reply brief is by motion only. So that's that's a little bit different. You know, it's interesting, and it's definitely, this is one of those things that can kind of catch you by surprise if you're not paying attention <laughs> when you go to, on the day your reply brief is due, when you go to file your uh, notice of extension and realize <laughs> you can't. You can't. You better file right. a motion. My experience is they will still grant motions, especially if they're unopposed, but, um, you know, it's you, you you can't be sure and you have to go through that extra step. So just be aware of that. And, and of course, they do front load. Like you said, they, they offer 120 days each on initial and answer briefs. So I think that's the most of any of the DCAs. It definitely is. But, you know, my theory is always if you're doing a reply brief right, <laughs> it should take you a fair <laughs> amount of time. You know, it's to me, a reply brief, I don't. 
had whole podcast episodes on this. Uh, I think there's an art to writing a reply brief that, you know, I don't, you know, like the the first where they do 90 days on an answer and 15 days on a reply. That's, that seems shortchanging the reply to me, but um, but this is definitely putting the pressure on to get your reply brief done on time. Absolutely. All right, so moving on to the fourth, and, and you know I just realized we haven't necessarily been giving all the administrative order numbers for this, uh, but I'm willing to bet that Mr. Diker will have them all in the show notes, at least as current as of the date of the publication of this uh, of this podcast, right? I, I will do that with the caveat that I will not keep it up to date, so <laughs> you're on your <laughs> Fair own <enough>. after that. <laughs> so in the fourth, we're talking administrative order 2018-1, notably this withdraws an administrative order from 2016. So this is one of the DCAs that has changed their procedures over the past couple of years if you haven't practiced there recently. And they have language that's different than everybody else's. Yeah, the fourth DCA's administrative order is quite different uh, than the other four in the way that the order itself is structured. The other DCA's administrative orders have at least a sentence or two saying what types of review proceedings this extension of time procedure applies to, and the fourth DCA's order does not. Now, it talks about what it does not apply to. It lists the the typical exceptions, adoptions, dependency, termination of parental rights, non-final orders, and any expedited or emergency appeals, but it doesn't have that that language that says what specifically it does apply to, which makes it a little bit ambiguous. Yeah, Dwayne and I were actually having a conversation about this order before we started recording. And the question was, does this order, does this proceeding in the fourth apply to original proceedings like CERT? And I think I've run into this question in practice too, but it's been a couple of years. So this language is tricky and that, again, it doesn't list the proceedings it applies to, but The first sentence of the order says, in lieu of an agreed motion for extension of time to file an initial answer or reply brief. And I think there's meaning to that. My guess, since you don't file a brief in a certiorari proceeding, you file a petition and a response. My guess is that this is intended to not apply to original proceedings just by using that language and not saying it directly. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, that did not jump out at me the first time I read this. But I think you're absolutely right. You know, uh, it's talking about initial answer and reply briefs. That doesn't fit with an original proceeding. So I think that uh, the, the assumption has to be that it does not apply to original proceedings. And, of course, that's consistent with, with the other DCAs. So I, I imagine they're not going out on a limb here. <laughs> Right. It might be worth a call to the clerk, though, if you're looking for an easy way to get an extension. Uh, you never know. You never know. And calling the clerk is always a, is always a great option. Uh, the fourth provides about the same amount of time for everything as I think the first ECA does. They say a total of 90 days for an initial or answer brief for an agreed extension or 15 days for a reply brief. There is one interesting thing I see in the order now that I'm looking at it is that at the end it says – no additional time, such as mail days, shall be added to the agreed extension. Of course, at this point, mail days are kind of a, a moot point with the rules because that's all been messed with since 2018. But uh, just an interesting vestige of a of days gone by. <laughs> right. <laughs> a little historical nod there. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? So moving to the, the last court, uh, the 5th DCA. 
50 CA order specifically includes uh, criminal and civil proceedings, and they say specifically to include delinquency, dissolution of marriage, probate, and guardianship. So th- those are <laughs> those are looped into the definition in this in this order that were were not in others. They're getting very specific here. Yes, and they have the typical exclusions uh, that we keep hearing: adoptions, dependency, termination of parental rights, expedited or emergency appeals, or uh, original proceedings. So again, fairly. Fairly consistent, but their time frames are a little bit different. So the time frames in the fifth DCA are 60 days for the initial brief, 60 days for the answer brief, and 30 days for the reply brief, which is pretty generous for the reply brief. Um, in criminal cases, it's a little bit shorter, 30, I think, for the initial and answer and 10 days for the reply brief, but generally still pretty, pretty generous. Although it is the shortest uh, allowed for initial and answer briefs, right? 60, everybody else is at least 90. They're at 60, but um, and they're 30 on the reply briefs. It's funny how these deadlines, one would like to have been in the meeting <laughs> where the judge has decided why this was appropriate, right? So these are kind of all over the board, but yeah, 60, 60, 30. Um, it's the only DCA that, that has adopted those particular time frames. Yeah, the most interesting thing, I think, is I remember when we saw the first DCA came out and they had a certain set of days that they granted for everything. And then watching each court come out with different numbers and going, huh, I, w- I wonder why this court has changed that a little bit. And then seeing the next one do the same thing. And, and now you get these amendments. Now the courts are starting to amend a couple of them. And we're getting further changes as they refine the rules. So it is interesting seeing uh, which court does which and wondering why, but we can only guess. You'd, you'd like to think that it's some, you know, really sophisticated analysis of, of workloads and that sort of thing, but it's probably some amount of horse trading between judges and the clerk's <laughs> office. And right. <laughs> I, I have guess. no comment at that point. <laughs> now, one thing you have to be careful of in the fifth is they also require uh, that you inform your client of any agreed extension and the administrative order on extensions of time specifically references uh, another administrative order about informing your client. So you have to provide a copy uh, of the notice of agreed extension to your client and you have to certify in your notice that you have served it upon your client that same day, or else uh, they will they will strike your notice of agreed extension. So you you don't want to get caught in that. Right, and the fifth ECA includes sample language for the main body of their stipulation, but it does not include uh, an express type of language for that certification or whatnot. So just be cautious that you don't just look at the. Look down for the um, the sample languages. Grab that and say, "All right, I'm good," because you won't be in the fifth. You know, I think this this brief survey. I think you can tell uh, these things are, are a little bit all over the board. I mean, there's some consistency between them, but there's also a lot of differences. I've going through this, Jared. I've noticed a couple things. We can we can come up with some you know sort of general rules and general things to keep in mind. The good news is it's as it relates to civil final order appeals, you can do an agreed notice of extension in any DCA on those. That's 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 clearly in the green. That's that's a go. 
as long as it's not one of those special expedited versions of a civil final appeal, you should be fine in any DCA. On the other hand, non-final orders, not so much. Uh, only the first and the fifth allow agreed notices of extension when it comes to non-final civil orders. So that's um, only two out of the five. You know, another universal truth we can say here is that we're pretty sure that you cannot get a stipulated extension on any original proceeding in any court. Yeah, and I think that we've talked about that. That kind of makes sense. You know, you, you wouldn't get an extension on a petition because that's the document that you know, jurisdictionally starts the appeal. Uh, right. So you're, that doesn't really apply. And you don't have to file a response unless the court orders a response. So it just it would it would get a little bit sticky, I guess, if the orders specifically applied to original proceedings. So it kind of makes sense. It's a little bit different animal. It kind of makes sense that it's just not included in this process. I agree. And of course, don't forget uh, in the third DCA, no agreed extension for reply briefs. It doesn't mean you won't get one, but you shouldn't count on it. So. Always keep that in mind if you're in the third. And uh, as we mentioned before, in the first DCA, if you get to the end of your 90-90-15 that you're allowed under the rule, you're going to have to show a bona fide emergency to get anything further. Now, again, we'll say it's you shouldn't necessarily expect that you're going to get further extensions anywhere, but certainly in the first, it seems like they're they're pretty clearly telegraphing um, you know, get it done <laughs> within <laughs> get it done within the allotted time. Absolutely, and like Dwayne said, best practices I think are in any VCA. Don't really count on having additional extensions. Plan on not using them if you don't think you'll need them. If you do need to file a motion beyond the extension time, make sure you include a you know a clear and good reason to explain it, just to make sure you let the court know why you're going past that you know initial amount of time that's been deemed generally acceptable by virtue of this proceeding. But in the first, I would just stay away from it as much as possible. So, Jared, I think that kind of is a good survey of agreed extensions of time. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks again for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Always a fun time here, Dwayne. Thanks again. My thanks again to Jared Krukar for joining me on the podcast. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice, and nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. When you need a bond, you often need it quickly. CSBA's contact information is in the show notes. Please take a moment, add it now to your contacts so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. The next episode will be out in September. I hope you will continue to download and listen. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal. 